As a way of introduction before I jump into this week's series, this week we are beginning one of our long journeys through a book of the Bible. This time, the book of Deuteronomy. Don't worry though, this one's not going to be as long as Jeremiah was. <laughs> Deuteronomy is, as Meredith mentioned last week actually at our church service, maybe her favorite book of the Bible. But that's only part of the reason why we're going to consider what it might say to us as followers of Jesus today. Deuteronomy is set right as the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. The narrative framing of the book is that these are the final speeches that Moses gives before his death. In fact, the way Deuteronomy itself explains what the book is about comes in the very first chapter, verse 5, which says that Moses began to expound or explain this teaching. In other words, this isn't new material. It's a repackaging of material first found in Leviticus and Numbers, newly explained and applied by Moses for a new context. This is, as one of the scholars I read put it, Moses' authorized application of Torah. Most scholars believe that this book, even if some of the material goes back to Moses, was rewritten, added to, adjusted over the years since Moses' day, through the time of the Assyrian conquest of the northern parts of Israel, and then even through to the time that the people of Judah are taken off into exile in Babylon and then are preparing to return. So the book is taking the original teaching that goes back to the Exodus and trying to make sense of how that material applies to a time 40, 200, 300 years later. This is, I think, why the book of Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted in the New Testament as well, where Jesus and Paul use it as a model for how to newly apply the teachings of God from the Old Testament to the radically new situation of the first century AD. Deuteronomy, in other words, is a model for any moment when the people of God find themselves coming out of a time of wilderness wandering or exile wandering or Roman occupation wandering or, dare I say, COVID wandering and into a time when God's promises might be fulfilled, fulfilled in coming to the promised land, fulfilled in the return from exile, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, God with us. Deuteronomy is a model for how we might also reapply the teachings of God to our context as we work to be the people of God today. For many of us, these past years have been a time of wandering through the wilderness, and we might hope for a time when we could arrive at the promised land of God's promises. And so as we try to be the people of God in this new season, we look to do today what Deuteronomy has done for the people of God so many times before, to think through how we might, as Deuteronomy 30 puts it, choose the life that is found in Yahweh God. We begin this week with chapter one, the opening of Deuteronomy. When I'm working on a sermon, I like to find like the hook or the through line that's going to kind of bring the whole thing together. The one idea that I can build what I'm going to say around. And that did not happen this week. <laughs> so what that means is today we're going to do things the old fashioned way. We'll have a good 45 minute expository verse by verse sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, what we're going to do is do a good old fashioned three point sermon. It is not alliterative, however. So, you know, that might mean it's not actually a word from God at all. You'll have to decide on that, I suppose. But anyway, we're going to be talking through Deuteronomy chapter one. I would suggest you have read this chapter before we start talking about it, um, rather than have me read the whole chapter, which is kind of long. That will just give you a little bit better context for what we're going to be say, saying moving forward. So Deuteronomy, as we've said, is a book about Moses's final speeches before the people of Israel march into the promised land. But it doesn't begin by looking forward 
to the task ahead, or even with a pep talk to get the people all psyched up and ready to go, it begins with a recap of how they got here. And by here, I mean sitting outside the promised land after having wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. It begins with a short summary story of their parents' generation's failure. Moses really knows how to get the people pumped up. (laughs) Why begin the book here? Remember, this story of failure was told and retold by the people of Israel, not just in the time of Moses, but hundreds of years later, when the kingdom of Judah is threatened by the empire of Assyria, and then even later when the people are in exile in Babylon. Why? Why dwell on this story of the failure of their distant ancestors? Well, as I said before, I think there are three responses, three not alliterative responses that were available in Moses' day and at each point along the way in Israel's history, and that are responses that are available for us today as we read this story as well. Response number one is wow. One of the striking things about this opening recap of their history is that Moses is, from the beginning, emphasizing the bigness, the vastness, the grandness of God's promises to Abraham. Moses highlights that the people have grown to be as many as the stars in the sky, just like God promised Abraham. And For those of you who are not experts in ancient Near Eastern geography, so most of us, I think it's safe to say, the land that is outlined in all the place names in the opening verses, it's basically all of modern day Israel, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and parts of Egypt, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. It's roughly equivalent to the empires of Assyria and Babylon that would have been, in effect, like the ends of the earth at the time this was written. And God is going to give you it all. Now, Israel never gets anywhere near this size in actual history, but that's why I think the story begins here. For the people living under Assyrian and Babylonian rule, it's a way of highlighting the vastness of a promise that the people reading the final versions of this book would have known had never come true. And then to tell them that promise is still valid. God doesn't take it back. You can make a different choice than your ancestors and experience the vastness of God's promises now. This story opens with an invitation to say, wow, to marvel at the vast goodness of a God who would promise so much. Our God is a God who makes big promises, whose dreams are nothing short than the flourishing and renewal of all creation, including us, but not limited to us. Our God promises a day when evil and even death itself will be destroyed. And we will live in God's presence and in God's good creation forever. And maybe most wow of all, Jesus tells us that promise is available for us to experience starting now. That the kingdom of God is here now if we would go up to receive it. That joy, abundance, peace, belonging, God's presence, justice could be ours and that we could be a part of bringing them to one another and to the world around us. And when you really stop to think about that, it's as much of a wow today as God telling a childless nomadic sheep herder named Abram from the outskirts of Babylon that his descendants will be given this vast promised land. Deuteronomy invites us to say, wow, to marvel at the vastness of God's vision and to have our own imagination of what is possible reset to match God's goodness not our own expectations. But then Deuteronomy demands that we confront the gap between God's dreams and the reality we see around us and to ask why that gap exists in the first place. 
And this brings us to the second response we see in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. Response number two is fear. The people's response is not to say, wow, it's to be afraid. Afraid of the apparent obstacles in the way of the fulfillment of God's promises. These people are like giants and we will be destroyed. The people are afraid because they don't trust. Not just that they don't trust God's power. They don't even trust God's goodness. Look at verse 27. It says, in Yahweh's hatred of us, he took us out of the land of Egypt so as to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. God hates us. Not God doesn't care or God doesn't love us or anything like that. God hates us. God wants us to be destroyed. Now, it's easy to read this and shake our heads at those silly Israelites, but we do the same thing. In fact, I think this is what happens when our dreams don't match God's dreams. Not because we dream too big or dream about something completely different, but because we dream too small. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes words that I'd bet some of you are familiar with. He writes, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for that enjoyment of it, that that's a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our dreams so often stop short of the vastness of the promises of God. Israel, toiling away in Pharaoh's brick factories, dreamed of freedom. And when God comes through on that dream, God moves on to the next step in the dream. But Israel is afraid of the bigness afraid of the obstacles in the way. And the Old Testament tells us that God's dreams for Israel actually would have moved even further from giving them a promised land, that Israel was supposed to build a society in that land that would then be a blessing to the whole world. Even the vastness of the promised land was really just the base from which the next dream would launch. God's dreams for blessing, blessing God's people, blessing the nations, blessing all of creation are incomprehensibly big, reaching into every corner of the created world. But our dreams, like Israel's, get stuck. We mistake the steps towards achieving God's dream for the dream itself. Israel says, hey, we got freedom. Maybe we can just preserve that and not risk it for a while or maybe like forever, just kind of stay here in the freedom thing. And then they're afraid when their comparatively small dream of freedom seems to be threatened by the next step that God is asking them to take. And their reaction to God when God seems to put their dream at risk is not, oh, God must have a bigger dream for us than we had imagined. We should trust that. Their reaction is clearly God hates us because our dreams are being put at risk. Telford Work, one of Meredith's professors from college in his commentary on Deuteronomy, which Meredith has mentioned in the acknowledgments of, by the way, just as Meredith Burns, if you (laughs) are picking it up and looking at it. So in his commentary, he puts it like this. When we don't trust God, hardship 
becomes hatred. Hardship becomes hatred. We dreamed of freedom, and if God loved us, God would let us have that. But instead, God is inviting us into the far riskier task of invading the promised land. God hates us. I think this is analogous to those times when we hold on to the steps along the way, and then those things don't satisfy like we expected, and we turn on God. How could God let this happen to me? Why can't I hold on to this dream of a family or a job or whatever the case may be? If God loved me, this wouldn't have happened. I think anytime we have a reaction in that ballpark of how could God let this happen to me? It's a clue that maybe we've become too attached to a piece of God's goodness and lost sight of the vastness of the promises that are before us. So this book begins with this particular story to invite us to say, wow, but also to invite us to consider where we are defaulting to fear over trust. And then the third response is one of frustration. This is the response that we see at the end of this chapter. After God tells the Israelites that they are going to have to wander in the wilderness, they take matters into their own hands. They say, okay, well, we will make the promise come true. Not by trusting God, but by achieving our dreams the way all the other nations do. We'll go fight for ourselves. Now on the surface, this seems like it's what God had wanted them to do. But there's a crucial difference. God wanted them to go up into the land, trusting that God would fight for them. Here, they are deciding to go fight for themselves. In other words, rather than trusting God, they trust themselves. And not just trust themselves, they trust the methods of the surrounding nations. One of the things we've talked about a lot as a community is that not only does God have dreams for where the world is going, we talked about this in our Mission of God series just recently, God also cares how we get there. If the whole world is going to be in harmony with and reflective of God's character, then the way the promise gets fulfilled also needs to be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. The problem with the final response in this passage is not what the Israelites do. It's how they go about it. Frustration is what makes the church say, you know, maybe political power and force is actually the best way to get society to reflect God. Maybe violence is really the way to lasting peace. Deuteronomy invites us to consider these three possible responses to the promises of God. We can react with a wow at the bigness and vastness of God's goodness. We can react with fear because of the obstacles in the way and the risks trusting God's promises might entail. We can resort to frustration as we take matters into our own hands and make the promises come true in the ways the world tells us to. And the question remains the same for each successive generation of Israel. In each new context, the people are confronted by this same choice. Will you trust God to keep God's promises? The book of Deuteronomy sets before each generation and now us the reality of God's promises, the vastness and grandness of those promises, a promised land that stretches through most of the known world, one that Yahweh will give to you. Will you go up and receive it? Will you trust that the apparent obstacles are no match for the power of Yahweh your God? The promises are still valid. The opportunity is still there. Will you take it? Or will you repeat the mistakes of your ancestors? Will you fear? Will you lash out in frustration? Or will you trust and just say, wow, 